to Better Than a Pill. I'm Carrie Van, and I help women over 40 improve their health and wellness and live pain-free. Welcome back to Better Than a Pill. Today, I am so excited to have Kristen Mallon as a guest with us today. And Kristen is a certified nurse, midwife, and a menopause specialist. And today, we're going to be talking about longevity and how it works. So welcome, Kristen. Thanks, Kari. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I am excited too. So let's start off a little bit. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the work that you do. Yeah. So um, I've been a midwife since 2006 and I always was in private practice and I started in Brooklyn and I started really with a passion for working with women really throughout their whole lifespan. I really wanted to kind of work with a woman from their fertility, getting pregnant, delivering babies, and then on through menopause and beyond. And I kind of noticed that once women were kind of done with their reproductive longevity, they were really focused on their primary longevity or their main longevity or their, you know, their full longevity. And um, that became like a really fun thing to kind of work on with women, you know, and, and some women choose not to have children or don't have children for various different reasons. And so that was always a really interesting thing to kind of just work on right from the get-go with all different types of women, all different times in life. But it's definitely been something that I've focused on in the second half of my career as like, it kind of applies now to all of the clients that I work with, with now. And um, it's something that I think as women kind of go through the transition of menopause it becomes more poignant as they go through that transition. Absolutely. I know I would, I'm interested, you know, and and I'm sure all of our listeners are as well. So tell me what exactly, how do you define longevity and how does it work? Yeah. So longevity, I think as a group, people who practice longevity medicine, I think are kind of collectively coming to define it as an expansion of health span and an expansion of lifespan. So it's this not just living longer, but living better because nobody wants to have a longer life. If that means just spending, you know, another 10 years in a nursing home or disabled or another 10 years after a stroke or after some sort of immobility situation. So that's really what we're focused on is, and a lot of times it's called the marginal decade or the marginal 15 years of life, the last 10 to 15 years of our lives, really making those so where we can still sit on the floor, take our overhead, our bag and put it in an overhead bin, travel, go on a hike, play tennis and do the things that we love. So it's kind of like getting an extra 10 years of life really to still have the same mobility and mental acuity that we have in our fifties and sixties at 90 or a hundred. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Yeah, hundred. Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me a hundred percent. And I like what you said. It's it's about the quality of that time too. Um, yes. And so, yeah. so what do you see, um, or what are the keys to longevity? So, if you ask me what I think the number one thing is, I would say it's movement, exercise you know, so (laughs) much of what you are all about. And I think that there's just no if, ands, or buts, no way around this. We can talk diet and supplements and molecules until we're blue in the face, but movement 
exercise, stability, mobility is the number one thing when it comes to longevity. So it's not really, you know, some, some doctors even say it's not really even worth having a conversation if we don't get that set first. Um, that's really the foundation of all aspects of longevity. From there, I would say that what we put into our bodies is probably number two. So that that there's a lot that goes into that. So not just diet, but supplements, nutraceuticals, including hormones and hormone supplementation, what we put on our skin, the shampoos we use, um, the laundry we use, et cetera, things like that. Yeah. That that totally makes sense. And I love how movement is the number one pillar. Wow. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and movement encompasses so many things. And I think movement can mean so many different things to so many different people. And we're so, so different and we're so unique. And I certainly don't think there's any one size fits all. I don't think that it has to be, well, everyone has to do zone two and zone four and Pilates and yoga and X and Z and Y. I think it can be as beautiful and unique as we all are, can be as beautiful and unique. And that's why I like to say movement <laughs> as, as movement means to each of us. Yes, I agree 100%. Exactly. And it, it is a, such a unique facet. And it's often, I feel, overlooked by doctors. They just assume it as one big generic thing, exercise, when there's just so much more involved, even within that you know, realm of movement and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think I remember, I don't want to be misquoted and, you know, the fact checking will probably be difficult on it, but I remember somebody once looked it up that exercise is like five times more effective than the next pill for certain things when it comes to uh, cardiovascular prevention and um, Alzheimer's and dementia prevention and, and bone loss and osteoporosis prevention. And, and I would believe that, I mean, I could, I could see how that could be true. So I, I just think that it's, it, there's even, I think a study going on now, and I can't remember what study it is. I, I wish I had it in front of me, but um, where exercise is meant to be, or movement is meant to be the number one recommendation for all across the board, across all ailments. So okay, well, you have depression and anxiety. Okay. Well, let's, before we, before we try even cognitive behavioral therapy, before we even try, you know, an SSRI, or before we try any of the traditional remedies, we're going to try movement first and okay. You have um, high blood pressure, we're going to try movement. So I think that that's going to be a really fascinating study to see what the results of that study are. Oh, wow. Absolutely. Five times. That's really powerful too. And yeah, you know, and it really sits well with me because I feel, you know, even in my own work that I do with people, that's the number one place we start. And I know not everybody sees it like that. So it just adds fuel to my fire. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what shortfalls did you see in women's healthcare, but particularly in those middle age that prompted you to do the work that you're doing? Yeah. So, th I mean, where do, where do we start? I mean, there's so many things there's so many things that I think are need help in women's healthcare. Um, so Dr. Peter Atia, huge doctor in longevity medicine, probably one of the leading doctors, I think in our area, certainly one that I look up to the most. And he talks a lot. He wrote a book called outlive. 
He was on Oprah recently. He talks about medicine 2.0 versus medicine 3.0. So medicine 2.0 is kind of the old way of doing things, how we've always done things. And it really focuses on sick care. So you don't go to the doctor until you're sick and you go to the doctor every year. You're supposed to go to the doctor every year. A lot of us don't because like, and I understand why we don't, because it's like, well, what's the point? Like, what am I getting out of it? They're just waiting until I'm sick or they're waiting until my blood values or my blood pressure or my data or my vital statistics are at a level where I'm sick and they're not, they're not in, they're not helping me with a prevention range. And that's really medicine 2.0. What, what kind of what Peter Atia describes and what his vision is, is he's like, let's move to medicine 3.0, where we're looking at someone's data and we're looking at their vital statistics and we're looking at their the information that's presented to us in terms of like all sorts of different things. So in terms of like for movement, like VO2 max and pulmonary function tests, and we're looking at their cardiolipid profile and we're looking at micronutrient testing and even like that microbiome testing. And we're saying, okay, this person isn't sick, but are these levels optimal? So I think that that's a question that we're like, so at Femgevity Health, which is, you know, my company, that's what we're asking now. So we're like, okay, obviously, well, hopefully most women that are coming to us aren't sick or if they're sick, they're just like on the very fringe of, of sick. They're just starting to get sick. So we're helping women optimize their health as opposed to treating sickness and treating chronic disease, which is where medicine 2.0 is today. I think also when you come to women's health, women's health has just been boxed into OBGYN. So OBGYNs have been, they have been, they have had so much loaded on their plate. It's amazing to me. I think like, and I'm so in awe of what, you know, I'm a certified nurse midwife. And so my colleagues are all OBGYNs. I'm amazed at what they have had to take on. So they've had to become experts in childbirth. They've had to become experts in all the surgeries that go along with childbirth. They've had to become experts in gynecology and all the surgeries that go along with gynecology. They've had to become experts in primary care because a lot of women use them as primary care doctors. So now you're talking about not just what's going on from like yeast infections and UTIs and, but now upper respiratory infections and ear infections and, you know, the things that happen to us in any given year, most women are going to their OBGYNs for that. Or a lot of women do, I wouldn't say most, but a lot of women do. They're also expert. They're also supposed to be experts in menopause and endocrinology and breast experts, you know, breast health. So I think it's like, I'm just in awe of what has been dumped on their plate. I feel like as opposed to in traditional medicine, you would never go to a cardiologist and say, okay, fix my endocrine system. And oh, by the way, fix my osteoporosis and also fix my, you know, urogynecology issue. All of those subspecialties in medicine have been, have been specialtied out. And I think we're starting to see this. We've done such a great job as a society. And, and I know there's work to be done on breast cancer, but we've done a really good job. I think we have to, we, we should celebrate how far we've come with breast cancer and breast cancer awareness. I think a lot of us know the statistics of breast cancer. We kind of um, have a very good prognosis now. You know, the survival rate is very, very high for breast cancer. Most of us know we should go get a mammogram at 40. We know how to handle breast cancer. And now we have breast specialists. That's a subspecialty of women's health. And so what I'd love to see, and, and what I think might be coming is I'd love to see OBGYNs subspecialty out. Obstetricians are obstetricians. They focus on pregnancy, childbirth, and high-risk pregnancy. Gynecologists are gynecologists. 
And you see a lot of this happening on their own. You know, a lot of times you hear people like, oh, I don't do OB anymore. I just do gynecology now. Like it's they're they're subspecialting on their own. And then I'd like to see GYNs become menopause specialists. And I'd like to see them become specialty in hormone balancing for women and the same way that we have breast specialists. So I, I think that that's kind of what one of the follies, I guess you could say, in women's health is that like we've just been like, ah, oh, women's health, no big deal. Like just women, no big deal. Like one doctor can handle all of these things, but really we need multiple subspecialties to handle the intricacies and the complexities that go along with all of these really complicated issues. I mean, fibroids is very complicated. Endometriosis is very complicated. Ovarian cysts is very complicated. And most of the time you have GYNs who specialize. I mean, I know a ton of GYNs who just do endometriosis and that's all they do. They just do robotic endometriosis surgery. And that's really, I think where we're moving to. And I think we're heading in the right direction, but I think that's one of the things that's happened in, in women's health, that, that that's kind of where I see femgevity has started to fill the hole and fill the gap of we've kind of fit into the niche of hormone balancing and helping women with perimenopause, menopause, and getting their hormones in line and, and what to do when that happens. Yes. Wow. So a couple things, could you say the name of the doctor one more time? Doctor, is it Atia? Yeah, Dr. Peter Atia, um, A-T-T-I-A. I think his website is Peter PeterAtiaMD.com or PeterAtia.com. And his book is called Outlive. Okay, great. And then your company, tell us a little bit about the the Fem Femgevity. And this is the the company that you founded. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So my co-founder, Michelle and I. So this really came about because, um, so I was working in private practice in um, New Jersey and my patients were getting older, you know, they were kind of, um, you know, started in 2006 and in 2006, my patients were twenties, thirties, and forties. And then, you know, every decade since then they've gotten older and, you know, they, their needs have changed and I've evolved with them. And as they kind of started to move into their forties, fifties, and sixties, they just had different needs. And, you know, I kind of looked for resources and I felt like I was looking for other colleagues to help me support them through the different hormonal changes that I think happen to women each decade. Cause I think sometimes we think about, okay, well, it's really just menopause, but really every decade, a woman is going through hormonal shifts. So what happens from zero to 10 is a certain hormonal shift. And what happens from 10 to 20 and what happens from 20 to 30. And I think women kind of, they know this because if you, if you're like, okay, how was your period in your teen years versus how was it in your thirties? They're like, oh yeah, totally different. Like, I totally know what you mean. It, it, hormonally, I was very different. And, you know, I was looking for colleagues to kind of guide me to guide my patients. And there just weren't any, it, it was just like a desert of nobody knew what to do. And, and I think there's a lot of reasons why, and, and I'm happy to get into that too, as, as to why nobody knew what to do. But I had an old colleague of mine from my very first job, Dr. Michael Abrahams, Harvard trained. He's a brilliant, brilliant doctor. And he knew what to do. And he had been working with women in, in hormonal, with hormonal shifts and hormonal changes, using bioidenticals, using HRT, using supplements, using herbs. He had been working with midwives and naturopaths for a very long time. Very, um, really, really, really brilliant guy. And he started helping me and coaching me and educating me. And so then we kind of started treating women together. And he he was like, you know, no one in the US is really doing this. You have to look to European literature and you have to look to the literature from Australia and New Zealand. And that's kind of how we started to 
kind of treat women that were needed hormonal supplementation, needed hormonal support, needed hormonal balancing for lots of different things, not just perimenopause and menopause, but PCOS and um, weight gain and um, premenstrual syndrome, lots of different things. And that's why Michelle and I started Femgevity is because there wasn't anything out there for women like this. They're just, you know, OBGYNs are, like I said in the beginning, so overloaded as it is, like they're so busy doing all of these different things that we're just dumping on them as a society. Like, okay, do all of these things, you know, handle all of these different types of medicine that they just don't have the time to understand all the intricacies of hormone balancing as well. So that's really why we got into it. Great. And that provides an additional tool and additional information to help women um, uh, see where they are earlier before, let's say, disease sets in. Yeah, absolutely. And then also hormone balancing helps to prevent a lot of longer term complications. So, you know, when you do hormone balancing properly in your thirties, it can actually prevent things like fibroids in the forties. And then when you do hormone balancing in the forties, it can actually prevent cardiovascular and osteoporosis in your sixties, et cetera. So it's, it, that's why hormone balancing and longevity go together so nicely and really well. So it's a key component for longevity for women. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's so many benefits to hormone supplementation and hormone support in the forties and fifties for the sixties, seventies, and eighties, like primarily with cognition and Alzheimer's cardiovascular and bone loss prevention, like really significant health benefits. And you, it's a, it's a mixture. It sounds like of, um, also integrating in some natural modalities, natural medicine, in, in addition to, um, mainstream medicine tools. Am I, is that, is that correct? Yeah. Well, everybody's very different. And so it's really about, um, we call it hormone support. So we really, you know, everybody can do that very differently. You know, some, some women need full hormone replacement therapy and some women can do that with herbs and and nutraceuticals and, and everything in between. Um, a, a lot of women we do find do best with bioidenticals, but again, it's, it, it runs the whole gamut and, you know, it's, it, it's kind of like this double-edged sword, I think, because, you know, I get this, I get a question a lot about like, well, you're giving, you know, you're a midwife and aren't you supposed to be natural and you're supposed to support natural childbirth and natural aging and natural menopause. And, and yes, you know, it is to go through menopause without any hormone support is natural, but it's also natural to age and it's also natural to die. And so like these supporting hormones is also a way to kind of like ease that transition and kind of like make it kind of extend lifespan and extend health span to make it just kind of make life a little bit better. If that's what women want, you know, it's such a, it's just an option. Sure. And I would see, I wouldn't see why they wouldn't. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, to each, each woman, their own. Right. Right. And, and, you know, it's interesting, but so menopause, obviously you've touched on, it affects our bones and, you know, so we're looking at, um, decreasing risk for osteopenia, osteoporosis, and then also, um, mental health to talk a little bit about how, how this can help with, you know, cause menopause does affect our mental health. Correct. Yes. So I'm so glad you brought that up and uh, given me an opportunity to talk about it. So one of the things that I think 
as a society, we don't really think about when it comes to menopause specifically is we don't really think about the four other main hormones. So there's many, many, many hormones that are involved, many sex steroid hormones, I should say. There's many more hormones. I mean, with insulin and thyroid hormones, but there's many, many other sex steroid hormones that are involved in the perimenopause and menopause progression that go down over time, not just estrogen, estrone, and estriol. And those hormones are that are really affected are progesterone, DHEA, and testosterone. And those start to go down in the late 30s. And very specifically, progesterone and testosterone going down can have profound effects on sleep. And then when you're having these profound effects on your sleep, really in your 40s, and a lot of women don't realize that this is happening to them because you know, women who don't track their sleep. So I use a sleep tracker every single night. So like, I, I know about it. I use the aura ring. I'm, I'm a, a huge data person in general. So I love data on myself, but women don't realize that they're losing deep sleep and that they're losing REM sleep until they start to have symptoms. And usually that's like years into the process where they've been losing sleep. And then once they start to have symptoms, that's going to affect their mental health usually, or their mood. And then this is where we can get symptoms like rage, anxiety, depression, feelings of hopelessness. We can even start to have new symptoms of OCD. I mean, a lot of symptoms will start to come up in the forties, very specifically in this perimenopausal time because of the loss of progesterone and testosterone and DHEA or, or a combination thereof. And it's, it's very different for every woman and how it manifests is very different for every woman, but a lot of it is related to the lack of deep sleep and the sleep loss. And I think that there's so much that can be done to educate and prevent um, just to kind of be aware that to track the sleep, to track hormone progression, to track hormone loss pro progression, and then to consider hormone support during this time can be really, really, really effective and really helpful for mental health and mood stabilization. Yes, of course, <clears throat> traditional therapies are great. You know, all the therapy modalities that we have, all of the pharma pharmacologics that we have for mental health are wonderful. But it's also great to consider hormone support for women in their 30s and 40s that are going through any type of mental health challenges during that that time in their life. Wow, that's powerful. Ed, with the relation to sleep. So I track sleep and I'm just curious how much um, deep sleep does a woman over 40 need? Yeah. So this is a really great question. And I, I know that this is going to sound really hard, but really 90 minutes would be ideal. So 90 minutes a night um, to two hours. Yeah. Okay. And most women don't, a lot of women, like sometimes when they come to me and they, they're tracking, they're getting like 30 minutes and they're scared and it's, it's okay. Cause it doesn't like, I don't want women to think like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I'm tracking. I've had some women come to me that are getting eight minutes of deep sleep and it's, it doesn't matter where you're starting. Cause there are a million things that can be done and there's a plethora of things that can be done. So I don't like to put that this like huge lofty goal of like 90 minutes out there and, and make everybody kind of nervous if they're getting way under that. I think that like tracking is the best way to kind of, so you know what you're working with and then start to work in um, the different types of modalities to get the, that deep sleep up. It will do wonders for not only hormonal health, but mental health, weight loss, 
hair growth. I mean, there's so many things that can come from getting the right amount of deep sleep. No, that's great to hear because generally we think about, okay, we need six to eight hours, maybe nine, but we never hear about the, the deep sleep component. So I'm going to start tracking that. Yeah. And everybody has, um, different chronotypes. And so there, there could be, you know, there, there is a chronotype of four hours of total sleep. And I think that chronotype, I think the deep sleep marker is around 30 minutes. That's a very rare chronotype that that's a genetic genotype. So, you know, there is variation within this. And so it's definitely rough range, but um, that's something that like, you know, we could evaluate FMGevity or you can get evaluated with someone who, who understands how to look at genetics or genetic markers and can help you evaluate um, the different stages of sleep and to let you know, like, okay, you know, okay, you're a six hour a night sleeper. Like you need six hours a night. Okay. Well, that means you need 50 minutes of deep sleep, or that means that you need 45 minutes of deep sleep. So working with someone who can read those um, different markers and understand how to help you. And really you want to try to get as much deep sleep a night as possible, really. I see. And so there is the component of not everybody. There are people that are outliers that only need four hours of sleep is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, very, very okay. rare. So I, I, you know, I would say that it's, it's probably, you're probably talking about like one in 5,000, I don't know, one in 10,000 people. So I don't want to, that's why I like, I never like to say like a one size fits all for anybody, but there definitely could be um, outliers in any given situation. Definitely. But yeah, roughly the, uh, it's, it's eight or nine hours. There are a few people that could go on four. Some people can go on six. Some people need 10 to 12, but that's gotcha. kind of like the, the rough range, so to speak. Yeah. So that, yeah, that, that makes sense. And so, cause it, again, sleep is individualized. And then you mentioned there's also the genetic um, component to that. Yep. Yeah. There's, there's genetic, um, there's certain genetic markers where people need less sleep and more sleep too. So what else do you think that women can do to prepare for, for menopause and optimize the overall transition? If you had to give some, some simple things that they could do starting today. Yeah. So I think it's different for each decade, but if someone's in their thirties, let's say, um, I think it's great to get a baseline hormone testing to know where their hormones naturally fall at both stages in the menstrual cycle. So um, a woman who's still ovulating and still having menstrual cycles would have, you know, in there's the luteal phase and the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle. So the, the first half of the menstrual cycle and the second half of the menstrual cycle. So it's good to get hormones done during the first half and hormones done during the second half of the menstrual cycle to kind of see where the hormones naturally fall. Um, even if a woman doesn't have a uterus, she's still, and, and she has ovaries, she's still ovulating. And so it's good to kind of track those hormones in the different parts of the menstrual cycle to know, or the ovulatory cycle to know um, what's normal for her and how she kind of feels normally in her thirties. The same thing in the forties um, to kind of have that data. So that's a great thing to know. Secondly, it's great to, as the decades go up. So like I said, I really think about women hormonally by decades. So in the thirties, you know, it's good to kind of start to work on building muscle mass. And then that becomes more important in the forties. We usually need to increase the amount of weights we do. So, um, you know, when you're in your thirties, you can usually get away with lower weights in terms of weight training In forties. We want to kind of increase the weights we do to put on more muscle mass because um, muscle mass will help us to burn more glucose and help us with insulin resistance will help to fight off lower abdominal weight gain that like kind of, you know, um, 
extra weight gain that happens around the mid-abdomen um, as we get into our, our mid-40s and late-40s. Um, it's great to establish an exercise routine or find an exercise that we enjoy and that we like and establish good eating habits. And then continue to track your hormones on usually a yearly basis in your 40s to know when you might need to add in hormone support. I see. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. And again, we have the movement compete, movement piece in there as a key component to that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, this is this is great. And I think the work that you're doing is amazing. It's awesome. And we need more of this out there. You know, the, you know, like when we started off, you know, a lot of times people just don't know what is available to them. And it's too late because like you've described, and I've even experienced myself is that the medical system today is overwhelmed and they're not able to get all their needs met nor do they know that there could be other ways to test for things. Um, and so, you know, I hear this all the time. I was, you know, talking to a neighbor last night. So um, I may even have her on the podcast eventually, but just an example, an extreme story is she's been going to the doctor for three years, not feeling well. Um, and all, all they say is, you know, your blood test, every blood tests are coming back normal. Everything's fine. Everything's fine until it got so bad. And finally the diagnosis of ovarian cancer. You know, it had to get to that point and, you know, that could have been prevented earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, you know, wow, you know, um, so yeah, something has to be done. And, and I think, um, what you're saying about things are moving in that direction and you are also with your company in alignment with that. So this is, this has been great. And I thank you so much for coming on here today. I I think everything you shared has been wonderful. And thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge with us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. And for all of you listening today, if you want to learn more about Kristen's work, I'll be including the link to her website, as well as all of her social links in the episode. And remember, we do new episodes every week on Wednesday, and I look forward to having you join me then. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. If you want more information about the podcast or to hear the latest episode, go to movementcraft.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the episode and found it helpful, please make sure you subscribe and share with a friend or family member because our whole goal here at Better Than a Pill is to empower you with lifelong tools to live healthy and pain-free.